Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And we're back with Eric Klein, George Norrie here with you. We're talking about his book, Digging Up Armageddon. His websites are linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Eric, at any given time, how many people lived on Megiddo? Oh, that's a really hard question to answer. Uh, <laughs> uh, it depends on how much space each one takes up, et cetera, et cetera. Short answer, I would say anywhere between a couple hundred to a couple thousand at the most. Interesting. So it wasn't a huge, thriving city by any means, was it? No, it was not huge. It was a typical city, but it wasn't absolutely huge, no. You've been there. Does it feel strange? I mean, do you get that old biblical feeling when you're up there? <laughs> you sure do, yes. That's I what actually, I thought. I excavated there for 20 years. We dug every other year. So I was there for 10 seasons from 1994 to 2014. And I tell you, when you walk up on the top of the mound uh, before any tourists are there, we would get there at 5 a.m. When you walk up there, wow, it, it, the sense of history is just overwhelming. And every time you take a step, you wonder, what am I walking over? What is underneath me? It's just it's a, an amazing feeling. Either with Breasted's excavation or yours, was anything uh, found of any uh, major significance? Oh, absolutely. Megiddo's been at the center of biblical archaeology for the past hundred years or so. Besides the water tunnel that I mentioned already, uh, Breasted's team found what they thought were the stables that Solomon built. In fact, there's a cablegram that I found in the archives where they wrote back and they said, um, we think we found Solomon's stables. Uh, And that made the front page of all the newspapers back in 1928. Now, what would the significance of that be? Well, for one thing, um, since the the Bible says that Solomon fortified Megiddo in one passage in the book of 1 Kings, and in another one talks about him having chariot cities, uh, they thought that they had found uh, the city that Solomon had built at Megiddo. Turned out they didn't. In fact, The city of Solomon has been extremely elusive at Megiddo. Uh, There's been four different excavations uh, over the last 100 years at the site, and no fewer than, uh, I believe, four different levels have been called Solomon City by this point. So it's very difficult to find. But besides that, there were a huge trove of um, ivories that were found in one of the in the palace. a hoard of gold. There's all kinds of things that have come out of Megiddo that place it firmly at the center of the archaeology of the region. And how to, how high is it, or how how high was it at its peak? At its peak, when they first got there, it was about a hundred feet tall. But wow. the way that the Chicago excavators dug, they would expose the topmost level, what they called stratum one. Um, they would completely reveal it, they would take a photogra- photographs, they would then draw it, and then they would peel it up and throw it away. They would just toss it out and then go to stratum two and then stratum three, uh, and, and then they started running out of money. So they switched from what we call horizontal archaeology, which is what they've been doing, to vertical archaeology, where they went straight down in one area. And that's how we know how many cities are there, 20 big cities, one on top of one the other. One on top of the other, my God. Yeah, because they went right down to bedrock. So that because they took off the top two, two and a half cities, 
the mound, which was 100 feet tall, is now only about 70 feet tall. So at one point in the beginning, it was on ground level. Way back when, probably not, well, yes, ground level, but it would have been a slight small rise. The original bedrock seems to uh, come up um, above the valley floor, but not by much. So the earliest people, yeah, would have just, you know, barely been above the valley floor. But as time went on and more cities were built and then destroyed and they kept building and rebuilding, uh, the mound grew and, until, you know, 100 feet tall is, is nothing to sneeze at. Was it easier to build on top of these older structures? Why didn't they just level them and start over again? Uh, it was much easier just to level them out and, and start uh, and build right on top because they're building out of mud brick, not out of stone or, or anything like that. And the mud brick, it's exactly what it sounds like. When you knock over a mud brick house, it goes back to dirt. And so you basically just have to smooth it out, and then you can build on it again. And that's what they would do again and again and again. It's very typical, not just at Megiddo, but at many of these mounds. We call them tells, T-E-L-L or T-E-L. They're found over all over what is today Israel, Jordan, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, all those areas. Basically, the modern Middle East, they have all these mounds. Um, but people didn't realize that they were actually man-made until the guy with the best name in archaeology, Sir William Matthew Flinders Petrie. Uh, he was digging in the late 1800s and up until the 1920s, and he and an American named Frederick Bliss were digging at a site called Tel Hesse, and they suddenly realized that this was a man-made mound, uh, and that's what we've been doing ever since, excavating uh, stratigraphically, which we've borrowed from geology. How flat is it on the top, and what are the dimensions? Uh, let's see. On top of Megiddo now, it's, it's quite flat because um, Chicago left it where most of the stratum three remains are visible. That's the... Um, Neo-Assyrian period from about the 7th century B.C. Uh, now, let's see, you can walk across it in 10 minutes going in any direction. So the top is, is not very big. It's also dotted with palm trees, which uh, there's an apocryphal story that the Egyptian workmen that Breasted brought to excavate, it was actually a holdover from Petrie's days, uh, where he had taught the Egyptian workmen to do uh, the the pickaxes and the shoveling and this and that. They would bring the Egyptian workmen every year to oversee the local villagers who were the ones carrying the dirt. And the story goes that the Egyptian workmen would eat dates uh, at breakfast and at lunch and would toss the pits out on the mound, and from then the date palms that you see today grew. Huh. I, personally, I personally think it's kind of apocryphal, but it's a nice story. It is a good story. Now, you uncovered letters, cablegrams, cards, and notes from Breasted's team. Where'd you find them? Ah, found them in the archives of the Oriental Institute. I wanted to write a book uh, about Megiddo and the archaeology. I was going to go level by level, city by city. Um, but when I went into the archives... 
to to look at their notebooks and all of that. Uh, to my surprise, I hadn't expected it. I found that they had the diaries and the letters and the cablegrams, not just from the directors. Uh, there were three directors over the, the 15 years or so, but also the team members. And I suddenly realized that nobody had written a book about an excavation using materials from the team members themselves and telling the story of the excavation from their point of view. So it was absolutely fascinating, uh, especially for me, because I knew most of the history already. Like, I knew that they had found the so-called Solomon Stables, but I didn't realize that there was a cable in the archives where the director wrote back to Breasted and said, I have found Solomon Stables. And I kind of sat back in my chair and I went, oh my gosh, look at this. I'm like, look, look, I started waving it around. So the people came to life for me. Uh, They had been just names on the spines of books, you know, and then lists of participants. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, here I am reading their letters back home and their diaries. And they became real people, you know, with hopes and fears and dreams and ambitions. And, um, uh, oh, my God, the, it was like a soap opera there a lot of times. So I, hmm. I suddenly thought, you know, the story of the archaeologist is just as interesting as the story of the archaeology, and nobody's really ever told that before. So let me see if there's a story there, and lo and behold, I'm... There sure there was. There sure. Yeah. And Eric, at what point is it estimated that civilizations ceased to live up there? Well, the last people that are there are the Persians. Um, so by the time... Alexander the Great came by, which would have been about 332 B.C. The mound was no longer inhabited. Um, Not quite sure why. I think the water source might have given out, at least temporarily. Uh, And so, in fact, when the Romans came, there's an entire Roman legion that, that is planted there. They live just off the mound. Uh, uh, and, in fact, their fort has been found and is being excavated by um, Matt Adams and Yotam Tepper and others. Uh, so we are, they're actually retrieving the Roman fort that you can see uh, from the top of the mound. It's just right near the bottom. So the Romans are there, too, but they're not up on top of the mound. They're actually, the Romans are using the mound more as a cemetery. They're, they're putting graves in, in the side and up on the top. At the time of Christ, what do you think was being used uh, on the top of Megiddo? Nothing? No, nothing. Um, you know, maybe shepherds, maybe this and maybe that. But speaking of that, it's rather interesting. Uh, at the crossroads right there, the Megiddo Junction, which is about uh, half a kilometer or so away from the site, is the Megiddo Prison today. It's a, it's a modern-day prison. But when they were excavating about 15 years ago uh, to put up a new building, they came across a a, a an ancient building from the couple centuries after the time of Christ. It's like the 3rd century, 4th century, 5th century A.D. But in one of the rooms of the building, they found a mosaic, and the mosaic mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the earliest mention that we've got of Jesus Christ anywhere, as far as I know. Now, what happened during the 1177 B.C. collapse? 1177 B.C. collapse, that's the end of the late Bronze Age. Um, 
So that's about 3,200 years ago. And basically, the, the world that stretched from what is today Italy to what is today Afghanistan and from what is today Turkey down to Egypt was all internationalized. It was globalized for their time period. They were happily trading for two, three, four hundred years wow. uh, at the end of the Bronze Age, you know, using tin and copper to make bronze. But suddenly, round about 1177, everything collapsed. They went down within a couple of decades, a century at most. And what had been a thriving set of civilizations, seven in all, the Canaanites and the Egyptians and the Hittites, Mycenaeans, Minoans, Assyrians, Babylonians, suddenly they're all gone. Um, it was a catastrophe uh, such as the world had never seen uh, and wouldn't see again until the Roman Empire collapsed. And that was 1,500 years later. So the collapse of the Late Bronze Age is 1177, um, and that is the title of my previous book, which I'm now working on revising because it seems um, <laughs> that it might be time to do it. So 1177 B.C. I think that's the one that you were on with me back in 2015, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. You have a good memory. So, yes. Um, so I'm revising that, but I'm also writing a sequel called after 1177, which deals with how they um, pulled themselves back up after they collapsed. The subtitle is The Rebirth of Civilization, and uh, it's going to cover the 400 years down to 776, which is the first Olympics in Greece. Uh, and so it deals with resiliency and rebirth, and what do you do after your civilization has collapsed? How do you come back and rebuild? Uh, and so Again, that not only seems a perfect sequel to 1177, but also seems like it might be a little appropriate for our world today. I was going to just ask you about that, Eric. Do you see any similarities between 1177 B.C. and what's happening today? I'm afraid I do. I see an awful lot of similarities. Oh, boy. Got, yeah. Um, famines, drought. Uh, invaders, war, Plagues. Uh, you name it. Yeah, we've got most of the things that they had, uh, which is why at the end of the book I just simply kind of gently say, you know, they collapsed, we've got most of what they had. Uh, it might be hubristic to think that we won't collapse, and now with the coronavirus running around, I'm thinking, God, I hate it when I'm prescient. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we have what they had back then, and they collapsed. So uh, I'm usually very optimistic, but I'm a little worried right now. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.